Season 4 Beyond the Plate is presented by Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch Country in 1955. They are the number one branded hamburger bun in America, and as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. My kids were a little under the weather the past week, so while one of them was loving the chicken noodle soup sick diet, I slid a piece of Martin's cinnamon raisin butter bread in front of him, and he downed it. So that's what he was loving. But how about this for an idea? Peanut butter and jelly French toast. Try it out. When I was a cook at the Four Seasons in Los Angeles, we used to make this as a little snack. Go about your business and make a peanut butter and jelly. I use the cinnamon raisin butter bread in this case. Dunk it in your traditional French toast batter, whether it's cream and egg or milk and egg, cinnamon, whatever you put in there. Give it a dunk and griddle it up like you would a normal French toast. It's amazing. Thank me later. Anyhow, here's what I love about Martins. They believe in giving back to their community. They support hundreds of charitable organizations, food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others. So to learn more about Martins, visit their website at potatorolls.com or follow them on social media at potatorolls. Martins, we thank you. We had started this little business out of the private dining room of 11 Madison Park called Shake Shack. This little business. I gave the business, it was, a, it was a shack in the park. Yeah. And I gave the business to the shareholders of 11 Madison Park because I felt so bad about how long it was taking to, to pay back the investment, including my grandfather being one of them. So Shake Shack was sending checks. It was making a hell of a lot more money than 11 Madison Park was. It is the reason 11 Madison Park stayed in business. Welcome to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey with food and their passion for giving back. I'm Cappy, and in this week's episode, we sit with none other than Danny Meyer. We sat down in Chicago when he was here for the Welcome Conference. A big thank you to Lazy Bird Bar in the Hoxton Hotel for letting us crash a booth there. He was coming from the Cubs Cards game, and I just asked him what he ate at Wrigley Field. But you'll have to continue listening to this episode to hear. Anyhow, if you don't know, you should know. Danny Meyer is the founder and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group, the founder of Shake Shack. Union Square Hospitality Group has Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, The Modern, and plenty more. So check this out. Danny, his restaurants, and chefs have earned 28 James Beard Awards. That's insane. Danny has been on Time 100 list for the most influential people in the world. That was back in 2015. He has a business book, his first business book, Setting the Table, which was a New York Times bestseller. It examines the power of hospitality in restaurants, business, and life. And get this, most people that ask me if I've read this book are not even in the restaurant industry, if you will. So whether you are or you are not, I highly encourage you to check out this book. One of my favorite things about Danny Meyer is he's a very active national leader in the fight against hunger. He's on the board of Share Our Strength, an organization that I work very closely with, and he's long supported hunger relief initiatives, including City Harvest in New York and God's Love We Deliver. So I'm going to stop here. This was a super fun conversation, and please enjoy it as we go Beyond the Plate with Danny Meyer. All right, so here for Welcome Conference Chicago, squeezing in some time uh, after the Cubs game. Did you get to eat at Wrigley or no? Um, I'm going to show you exactly what I got to eat at Wrigley. It was it was great. Is that a Shake Shack burger? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I snuck it in. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's amazing. I love it. I was expecting a Vienna dog or something, you know what? but there we go. I could have gotten the Vienna dog yeah. at Shake Shack also, but... I love it. Okay, so you probably won't remember this, but I was a student at Florida International University, and I did a project 16 years ago. We had a project we had to do on a service book. I don't think you had your book at the time. Correct. And so I said to my professor, may I just interview a few of my restaurateurs that I look up to as a student? So I did Drew Nieperant, yourself, and Rich Melman. Jenny Dirksen was your assistant at the time. Oh my gosh. Wow. And I still have that paper, by the way, on my computer. I saw Jenny on Monday night of this week because my daughter just opened an ice cream place. I noticed that. And there was Jenny. I cannot wait to go there. Cafe Panna, is that the name? By the way, I just flew in from Italy today. Today? Yes. I was in Tuscany for a few days. Oh, my God. Yeah, with You Rachel. just got in today? Yeah. How come you look so well? I don't know. All right. I don't know. Share our strength. No Kid Hungry. You've done tons of work with that. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but I'm on their leadership council, which I know you chaired. You grew up in St. Louis. Share a couple of your favorite food memories as a kid. Oh, uh, no, no question about it. It, it. It's not hard because back when I was growing up, there really wasn't all that much great food. So the best food memories are all things that I've actually had a chance to play with in my professional career all these years later. Um, things like toasted ravioli and, you know, I know people make fun of Provel cheese, which because they say it's actually not even cheese. Um, which we used to get at Emo's Pizza before the, the uh, Blues games. And you could also get it at a place called Ferrato's. But I loved it. You know, you, you, you grow up loving what you love. Of course, Ted Drew's Frozen Custard, Steak and Shake. Crown Candy Kitchen had the world's best milkshakes and the, at least the tallest BLT in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I used to love that stuff. Was Lion's Choice open I don't think I know Lion's Choice. Um, we did have the Fatted Calf, which had interesting burgers. We had the Flaming Pit, which had great burgers. Straub's, which was a food market. If you went upstairs, not only had a great cheeseburger, but also the kind of milkshake where they would serve the little extra silver thing on the side. And, and probably my favorite, now that now that we're sitting here talking about it, was a drive-in burger and root beer joint called Fitz's. And you would turn on the lights of your car when it was when you wanted service, and they'd run out, and you know they'd bring you your your tray of food, and you know that's those are the memories, and that's how we came up with shack sauce. I was I was thinking about how much I loved kitchen sauce at Fitz's, and it's a different flavor altogether, but it was the crinkle cut fries, and those memories are just great. Yeah, absolutely. Shake Shack, I'm not just saying this. I always tell this to everybody. It is my favorite burger, and everyone says why, and I dug back into my memory bank when I was a kid, and there was a a greasy spoon place in in the suburb I grew up in, the north side of Chicago, called Harry's Grill, and they did their burger on a flat top, and it would get that crunchy exterior, and I was like, that's that is where that's popping up from. It's one of my favorites, but those those memories. But I even have great memories. I spent about a year and a half, like right in my late teens and early 20s here in Chicago. And the Chicago-style hot dogs, that was a big deal for me. And, and I would get them every which way. And as you just said, some people were steaming them. Some people were doing them on a flat top. Some people were char grilling or char broiling, whatever they called them. Anyway, that's wild. That's wild. How about the dinner table at the Meyer household? What was that like? It was difficult and great all at the same time. Um, It was, 
it was the time that our whole family was together. And, you know, I've got to give them credit. Obviously, it was a time when most families got together at dinner, but the TV was not on. We obviously weren't looking at devices because we didn't have devices back then. And as the middle child of three in a household where mom was pretty liberal and dad was pretty conservative, and it was a time when, you know, the, the stuff we were talking about was Watergate and Vietnam and Nixon and all this kind of stuff. It was, that's what the dinner table was about. It, it was about working out issues. And, and I, was, I was dead center, you know, in every, in every possible way, politically, um, dead center of three kids in the family, dead center in terms of really, um, I loved food and I, and I loved that the thing that made me so happy was also the thing that kind of calmed everybody down. So we were having these debates, but it was kind of hard to have an out loud argument when you were eating a great piece of fried chicken or macaroni and cheese or, you know, whatever, whatever it was. We weren't just cooking that kind of food. My dad's favorite dish was ratatouille. Really? In fact, we named our dog after his favorite dish. <laughs> Did mom cook or, da or dad no, cook? No, they, they both cooked. Both. I, I cooked a lot outside on the grill with my dad. My mom cooked a lot though. From a young age, were you cooking? Yeah, always. I mean, do you still cook a lot? I still do. Yeah, yep. I love that. Dad was an army intelligence officer, later a hotelier in Italy, but he seemed hard on you in a good way? No, he really wasn't that no. hard on me. Is your grandfather that's hard on you? Um, not really. No. No, the only time I, my, my two grandfathers, I was lucky that I had all four grandparents until I was in my mid-30s. And one set of the grandparents was from here in Chicago. The only time that, that I'd say that the Chicago grandfather, Irving Harris, was really tough on me was when it came time to open 11 Madison Park and Tabla, the, the costs had just gotten way, way away from me. Yeah. And doing those two restaurants in a historic building together cost over $11 million. And that's a lot of money in 1998. Yeah. And when I asked him if he would invest, he said, not until you get at least, you know, twice or three or four times as much money from other people, because otherwise you'll never know if you're actually just asking a favor or if you have a real business opportunity. And so we did it. I went out, got, got enough money from enough other people. Turned out to be one of the hardest and longest investments ever. Hmm. Tabla would go out of business um, in about 12, took about 12 years. After 12 years, we got everybody their money back plus about, you know, 5% return, which oh, wow. is pretty bad, but hey, they got their they money, got the money back. back. The 11 Madison Park investment, on the other hand, turned out great because while 11 Madison Park easily could have gone out of business um, during the, the Great Recession, we had started this little business out of the private dining room of 11 Madison Park called Shake Shack. And I <laughs> this gave- This little business. I gave the business, it was, a, it was a shack in the park. Yeah. And I gave the business to the shareholders of 11 Madison Park because I felt so bad about how long it was taking to, to pay back the investment, including my grandfather being one of them. And uh, so Shake Shack was sending checks. It was making a hell of a lot more money than 11 Madison Park was. It is the reason 11 Madison Park stayed in business. And then there came a point when I said, let's just separate the two. And so Shake Shack 
bought itself back from 11 Madison, which put even more cash into 11 Madison. And then all of the investors of 11 Madison Park had an opportunity to then invest in Shake Shack and they all did pretty darn well. Amazing. It's a, it, the, does the conservancy still still get funds? Oh from, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when we built Shake Shack, we gifted it philanthropically. We gifted the building to the park so mm. the park would become the landlord. And the entire goal, we honestly had no idea that this was going to become a business. It was really, it was really an opportunity to try to do two two things. If we could have a, a product that would attract people from 11 in the morning to 11 at night, that alone would keep the park safe and feeling better. And then secondly, if it made any revenues, <laughs> I didn't know if it was going to make money, but if there were any revenues, we were going to give a percentage of those revenues right back to the park. Hmm. So I think we, we succeeded on yeah. all those things. <laughs> and this past year, the original Shake Shack, the one in Madison Square Park, pays just shy of a million dollars a year to Madison Square Park. Wow. Which helps keep the park beautiful and safe yeah. and programmed. That's amazing. Your first restaurant job, I believe, wasn't until a little later in life. Is that right? Like you you had you started another career first? Well, right after I graduated from Trinity College with a major in political science, I moved here to Chicago. And the first job I got was uh Working, actually, actually, the first job I got was working for WTTW, the uh, the public TV station, yeah. Channel Eleven, and I got a job working as a production assistant for the political programming, yeah. and it was fun. You know, I, I was interested in either journalism or, or law um, after I graduated, and there came a I'll never forget this. There came a, a Friday when somehow I got two job offers. And I guess I, I, I don't really remember, but I must have been nosing around for this. Yeah. One was from WTTW saying, you could now have your own uh, TV show. Huh. It would be a public affairs show that would broadcast at four in the morning on Sunday mornings because by law they had to do that. No one would watch it, but you can have it. And on that same day, I got an offer to be the Cook County... Uh, field coordinator for John Anderson's 1980 presidential campaign. John Anderson, for those of you who don't remember, was a, an Illinois congressman from Rockford, Illinois. He was running in the Republican primary, and that was one of those years where, because Jimmy Carter was president, there were a ton of Republicans running. Anderson ended up um, losing in the primaries to Ronald Reagan, who would be the, the nominee. But Anderson then decided to run as an independent. And being a centrist as I, as I was, I really liked this guy that he was socially progressive and economically conservative. And I got this, I decided on that day that I got those two job offers, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the one that could potentially teach me the most. It's finite, obviously the campaign's gonna be done in November. Um, but he did get seven and a half percent of the vote which meant I got my last $214 a week paycheck. And I'm going to say I, I probably learned one of the greatest um, management and leadership lessons that I still to this day carry with me. And that's that, you know, 100% of the people who were working for me back then at, at the age of 22, 
100% of the people working for me were volunteers. So I didn't have the opportunity to give anybody a raise or a promotion. The only thing I had as a way to, to, to really motivate people was to appeal to a common higher purpose. Like, why are we all doing this? And so I think to this day, when I hire people and when I lead people, I, I continue to take that attitude that um, you're volunteering because if you're good enough to work for us, you're probably good enough to have gotten another 20 jobs. So, if you're, so what that truly means is even though we do pay you and we can give you a raise and a promotion, we treat you as if you were a volunteer and we try to make sure that, that we provide you with the higher purpose for which you really came to, to Union Square Hospitality Group in the first place. Super interesting. I like that. So Union Square Cafe, your first restaurant, you were 27. And I, I believe I read you were told by many people that it wouldn't make it. Well, how do you deal with doubt? <laughs> well, I think, you know, most entrepreneurs don't really understand doubt because they don't doubt the passion that they have for the for the topic. They don't doubt that other people will, will probably love that topic just as much as they do. They just, or I should say we, because I'm one of them, really try to, to, to focus on sharing what you love with other people. And so I'll, I'll, I'll just say with, with Union Square Cafe, there were some moments when people would say things, you know, like, what kind of restaurant are you going to open? And I'd say, well, it's going to have a, a little bit of my love for France, a little bit of my love for Italy, and a little bit of my love for San Francisco and Berkeley. What's that? And I'd say, I don't know, but it's food I love and, and I can't wait to share it. Well, no one goes out to eat eclectic. They go out for Chinese or they go out for French or they go out for whatever, Italian. And so that would put a little bit of doubt, but I'd never, ever lost sight of what I wanted to do. Or, you know, there would be a day that somebody from the New York Post would come in and say, hey, we just heard that Jessica Lang ate here yesterday and you didn't report it to us. And, I, and I'd go, well, why would I? You know, she's just trying to have a nice meal. Well, if you don't, if you don't play by our rules, you're going to go out of business. Hmm. Or there would be the day that these guys came in and they literally called me over to their table with their awful cologne and gold <laughs> bracelets. And they had taken the arugula off the top of the tagliata steak that we were serving, threw it on the, the tablecloth, getting olive oil all over everything. And they said, if you don't change trash companies, and if you don't change linen companies, and if you don't change bread companies, and dairy companies, and fish companies, this is what your restaurant's going to look like all the time. Jeez. That put some doubt in my mind, but I just kept, I just said, you know, we're kind of happy with our linen company. Why would we change? Wow. <laughs> just kind of, you know, do what I did. Yeah, that's wild. Do you, do you get nervous still, like when you open a new restaurant? I don't get nervous, but I, you know, I think that worry is concern taken too far. So I'm always concerned. I, I'm, I'm always concerned that we are playing at the top of our game because I know that when we do, it should do pretty well. Yeah. And I know that if, if we're not playing well, it has nothing to do with the restaurant across the street or it's either we didn't get it right or not. So I'm always concerned, but, but I don't get nervous. 
I don't think. Got it. So you visited a hundred plus places before you chose the original Union Square Cafe. How many did you visit before this this current one? Oh my gosh. Well, actually, actually, it's not that we visited as many places. I'm going to to answer your question directly. I'd say probably thirty. But the reason we didn't visit as many is that it was important to me that to be Union Square Cafe, it should credibly be Union Square Cafe. We had, you know, when, it, when we made it clear that we had lost our lease at the 30-year-old, the original Union Square Cafe, we had offers coming in from all over the place, even beyond the United States. Hey, we'll build you a Union Square Cafe because we really want that. But it just didn't feel like it would be Union Square Cafe. It would almost be like if you made a, a great single vineyard wine in Burgundy and and you all of a sudden think that you can move that exact same single vineyard to the Napa Valley, um, you know, you could do that, but it's not going to taste the same. And I think Union Square Cafe is truly a restaurant of its own terroir. So there just were not that many options that were within a five or six minute walk of, of the Union Square Green Market. Yeah. And that was important for me. Okay. So when I walk into somewhere like Daily Provisions and and Max catches my eye and he looks up and walks around the counter and smiles and shakes my hand and says, hello, that's hospitality to me, you know? I have a question. How, how do you provide hospitality, eye contact, smiles, hugs, when someone is ordering through an app in this new current digital age? Or when you have a place like Shake Shack that is great consistent food, but lines? How do you how do you deal with well, that? Well, I think you still can look at different touch points and by defining hospitality as something that happens when the person on the receiving end feels like you're on their side, there are ways to make you feel like you're on my side even with an app. And there are also ways to make you not feel like we're on your side. Um, there's There's such an opportunity to screw up the user experience on an app. And there's also such an opportunity to say, welcome back, Andrew. Yeah. Or, you know, do you want, do you want your usual? You could do that on an app. Here's your usual order. Would you like to modify it? There's so many ways of still recognizing you. Now, I'm a big, big believer that, and I learned this, I think, the hard way. You know, I was one of the uh, early investors in Open Table and helped to bring it to New York and then to the United States and then to London and even Tokyo. So I was always a big proponent, but it it probably took me two years too long to get there. And the reason is I always felt I don't want to give up the opportunity to really have a dialogue on the telephone with someone. And then finally, one of my business partners, Richard Corain, said, you know, if someone wants to make a reservation online and they don't want to pick up the phone and call, isn't it an absence of hospitality to make them call, get a busy signal, learn that we're booked if that's not how they want to do it? So so then all of our emphasis was, yeah, keeping great on the phone. But if people are saying the way I want to do it is through an app or through, you know, my computer or my device or whatever, let them do it that way. Now, all that said, I think it's a mistake for people to think that we can replicate the human experience of eye contact and a smile and true human-to-human recognition 
with anything other than being face to face. And so for that reason, even though the restaurant industry is certainly, you know, it, I, I feel like we're like a paperweight with snow and it's being shaken up right now and we're trying to figure out where it's all going to land. But I do think that I'm, I'm as bullish as ever that people want to be with people at the table, breaking bread and really connecting. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. What's the last overall restaurant experience that stopped you in your tracks? Hmm, stopped me in my tracks. Or service experience, or give me a second on that. I, I got, yeah. I got to think about that. Yeah, they, they've they've certainly happened, and it's it's generally understated. I think when somebody goes a little too far, it can be a little much. Now. I will tell you that um, I'm a sucker for my favorite cocktail, which is the Mortoni. And I named it after my late father, Morton Meyer. His favorite drink when I was a kid was the Negroni. I mean, way before every hipster was drinking Negronis, <laughs> I didn't have any idea and what it turning was. Turning them into slushies? Well, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he'd come home from work. He'd make himself a Negroni. He was a real Europhile. And um, when I got to be... Of, of age where I was sort of interested in cocktails, I realized I can't drink gin because of one bad night in high school. I don't like vermouth. So I came up with this drink called the Mortoni. And it was equal parts vodka, Campari, a little bit of citrus, and then tonic. And it's light as can be. It's absolutely delicious. So anyway, I've published that in a, in a drink book that we came out with many years ago called Mick Shake Stir. And a great hospitality experience, which I've now had twice. I was giving a, a talk in Toronto and I checked into the Westin Hotel, huge hotel where the, where the talk was. It was for a big pizza company. And as I get into my room, I see a big bowl of lemons, oranges, and limes. I see a small bottle of Grey Goose vodka. I see a, a liter pitcher of Campari and a bunch of cans of tonic water with ice on the side. There you go. With the instructions on how to make a Mortoni with a big welcome to Toronto note. Smart. From a hotel I've never stayed at. Yeah. And I said, you know what? These guys are on the ball. Yeah. It's amazing. I love that. I love that. Okay, so I was fascinated. I was fascinated to hear, I say here because I did the Audible book, that in your early, what you wanted from your early restaurants was to not impose on a neighborhood to be part of the neighborhood. And I always found it interesting when I talked with Mark Rosati, I referenced his name, your culinary director for Shake Shack, when he goes out to a city or country to do his homework. You know, before you open there, I, I, I find that fascinating. And Mark talks about this a little bit on the podcast from season two. But now that Shake Shack is global, like, do, do you worry about the brand or not being in full control or is the operations, are they set up in place? I think you're asking two different questions. First of all, we're never in control. And I think that's such, so no, I don't worry about it. I just accept it. I, and, and then I think the other part of your question is, can we retain the special care for being part of someone's community and not something we just imposed upon it? And the answer is absolutely. And the minute we're outgrowing that concern for making it your shack, then it's time to hang them up. And, you know, we still do it to this day. 
Um, Mark is great at it. Look, we realized it took us several years to to grow Shake Shack, period. We only had one Shake Shack for the first five years. It's, it's a 15-year-old company. It's amazing. And so when we opened our second Shake Shack on the Upper West Side, that was a very different part of New York. And we did not want to impose our flat iron mentality on the Upper West Side. And then we went to the Upper East Side. And finally, I think with about the fifth Shake Shack or something, probably off by one or two, we went to Miami. And then we went to Washington, D.C. And in each one of those cases, we were hyper, hyper humble because now you're going to a different city. And it doesn't matter that I'm originally from St. Louis and I will always feel like a Midwesterner. Shake Shack was born in New York City. And the new, the brand of New York, sadly, doesn't matter who we are, but the brand of New York is arrogance. And so Shake Shack has always gone out of its way and it always will go out of its way, whether it's another city. Like, do you think Philadelphia wants to hear from a New Yorker what a burger is supposed to taste like? You think Boston wants to hear that? You think Chicago wants to hear what a hot dog is supposed to taste right. like? <laughs> you think LA, the right. home of or California, the home of In-N-Out Burger and so many others wants to hear about cheese? No, so we go in as humbly as we possibly can we try to embrace what's local. You know, some of my favorites, um, well, here in Chicago, we worked with Publican yeah. to, to get the best sausage. Worked with the best butcher in London to do a Cumberland sausage, Chicago style. In Austin, we work with amazing uh, smokehouses to, to do what I, I love, the, the Lockhart Link, which is a shack burger topped with a amazing sausage either from Kreitz Market or, you know, some of the others down in Texas. Try that next yeah, time no, they're Austin. great. But wherever we go, we try to bring a little bit of a local flavor to it. And I think that if Shake Shack ever outgrows that, that's gonna be that's gonna be a little loss of our soul. Yeah. I hope we don't. What do you think was the hardest point in growing Shake Shack? And I, I'm curious because when I talked to Rich Melman about growing pains, I think I believe he said it was harder for him to go from one to two restaurants or two to three restaurants and it was from one to eight. Yeah, I think that's true. And Rich gave me that very advice oh, yeah. many years. Oh, I went to Rich. He was my he was my touchstone. I was in his office just like you were. And he was incredibly gracious and generous with his time. And, and uh, he helped me out a lot. So did another uh, great Chicago restaurateur, Larry Levy. Yeah. And I took a lot of a lot of inspiration from those guys because they were really amongst the first that showed that that there was something other than either being a one-of-a-kind independent restaurant or a chain, and that was to have a, a full-service uh, restaurant group. And so they gave me lots and lots of advice. But one of the big things Rich would share was going from one to two is going to be the, the biggest challenge. And it was because going from Union Square Cafe 10 years later to Gramercy Tavern to this day, I'll say, was just about as challenging as anything I've ever done. Really? Yes. Wow. Really interesting. Okay. Social impact, giving back. You do a ton for Share Our Strength, No Get Hungry, more than most um, time, money, resources. How and why do you pick Share Our Strength or the causes? I think Share Our Strength picked me in a certain way. And I, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a cliche to say that um, if you're in the food world, you should care about hunger. Um, well, I guess it's a cliche and, and I'll say it's also true. What we do every single day is to take care of people 
who are fortunate enough to be able to purchase the pleasure that sitting at the table with really good food provides. And I love that. I love that. I love being in that business. But I also believe the true hospitality doesn't live only within the four walls of your restaurant. Yeah. And I think that when you see that what you know how to do can also take care of people who cannot afford to do that, and it's not really that much of a stretch to serve other people. Uh, and, and secondly, I'd say it's a great way to give the people who work on our team a higher purpose. I love that. To fully understand hospitality. Then we, you know, we stretch and we do it. Yeah, that's incredible. Okay, I'm going to roll through a super quick, less than a minute speed round. What did you have for dinner last night? Oh, last night I had a great dinner at the Chicago restaurant Monteverdi. Oh, yeah. And uh, my wife, Audrey, and I were with my cousins, and we ate practically the entire menu. <laughs> That's a good one. Last time you ate fast food, not Shake Shack, and what? I don't remember the last time I had fast food. I do eat a lot of, of fast, casual, fine, casual food, and I love, I love sweet green and tender greens and kava. I'm pretty happy with those. Nice. Dig in. Yeah. Formerly known as Dig In, now called Dig. Oh, did they? Which we made an investment in. Nice. Nice. What makes you smile in the dining room? I think what makes me smile in the dining room is, is watching anybody's team really, really doing an excellent job at what they do and having fun with each other. Kind of like in a really humble, swagger kind of way. Just like, we got this. This is choreography and we're really good at it. What doesn't make me smile is just too many interruptions. Um, you know, I think people go out to eat to be with each other and they don't need to hear 15 times, is everything okay? Yeah. Well, my next question was a pet peeve in the dining room, so uh, we'll take that. Last, you, you tend to use the phrase, whoever wrote the rule, X. Last time you used the phrase, whoever wrote the rule, well, the last time I used it was probably four hours ago. And uh, the, the funny thing was I wanted to go see the, the newish Shake Shack, which just opened this year in Wrigleyville because I hadn't seen it yet. And it gave me a chance to go see the Cardinals and Cubs. And, of course, they asked me, would you like to have your shack here or would you like it to go? And I said, do you have any idea... I said to the manager whether they let you bring in food to Wrigley Field, because sometimes they don't. I mean, I've brought barbecue to watch the Astros and Cardinals play at times. But so they said, I don't really know. But I said, well, whoever wrote the rule that we can't try to take it in. And if worse comes to worse, we'll just eat it out on the plaza there. Perfect. So I, I use it all the time. Perfect. I like to break rules. I love it. All right. Wrap it up here. Um, you said you want to be fortunate to stay in this business long enough and continue to execute consistently well so that today's young people may be at a burger joint and say, the best hamburger I've ever had was at Shake Shack. I'm going to venture to say by now you've created plenty of those memories for people. <laughs> so somewhere there's an 18, 19, 20-year-old college student in class at Florida International University or Cornell or UNLV. What advice do you have for this guy or girl studying hospitality who may be the next Danny Meyer? Well, take your time. And, and if you take your time now, you can go faster later. I think that everybody's in such a hurry right now. We're, we're, 
We're living in such a fast time, we expect immediate answers. And I think that hospitality isn't about having the right answer, it's about having the right attitude. And I think the right attitude is one that, that we go to work every day in a humble way for the pleasure of other people. And that is one relationship at a time. And it, it takes time, but it's so gratifying when you do it. So I, my advice would be, you're doing something noble, but realize that we are human beings. We're not human doings. And just be. Yeah. Amazing. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for everything you do for organizations like thank Share you, Strength. And uh, in the spirit of writing a great last chapter for the guest experience, uh, here's hopefully a great uh, last chapter for this interview experience. Oh, cool. There's a little something I love when I come back on my way back from Rome, and hopefully you get a similar reaction um, that I get. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> so I got I, I got Danny some paprika flavored Pringles, which That's I only amazing. see in Italy. You only see them there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Enjoy the rest of your time in Chicago. Right. Thanks so much. Yeah. Quote, I believe that true hospitality doesn't live only within the four walls of your restaurant. When you see that what you know how to do can also take care of people who cannot afford to do that, it's not really that much of a stretch to serve other people. Secondly, it's a great way to give the people who work on our team a higher purpose to fully understand hospitality. Thanks again to Danny Meyer. Find more on him at ushgnyc.com. That's ushgnyc.com, short for Union Square Hospitality Group, NYC. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast and Facebook. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yeaton, and Chant Petrosian. Big thank you to Tom Osborne. Our music has been composed by Goldford. As always, very special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Join us next week for Just the Plate when Danny Meyer talks us through one of the only dishes that's been on the menu at Union Square Cafe since day one. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.